In chapters 7 through 10 of his gospel, John finishes his account of Jesus' interaction with four Jewish festivals. The friction between Jesus and the leaders of the Jews during these festivals highlights Jesus' message that not only is he the long-awaited Messiah, but he is the very God of Israel. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson is number 17, I am the Good Shepherd, John chapter 7 through 10. We have a couple of questions from last time. Uh, Fenn writes uh, to recommend a talk by Brother Welch in the February 2007 Enzyme. Brother Welch is a BYU professor, and this is a talk on the Good Samaritan. So I highly recommend that article, and that's available online on the uh, on LDS.org or on uh your, in your gospel library app. That's the Enzyme from 2007. And Janet writes uh, also about the parable of the Good Samaritan and points out that the priest that passed by the, the wounded man on the side of the road is described as coming down from, or coming down, implying that he's coming from Jerusalem. Because um, if you've studied the Book of Mormon, you know that when they talk about going up to Jerusalem, it means in altitude rather than going north or south. Um, and uh, similarly here, to go from Jericho to Jerusalem, there's only one direction in which you come down, and that's from Jerusalem to Jericho. So her point is that the priest didn't have the excuse that he's heading towards the temple and has to remain, uh, he has to remain ritually pure and can't go any, near any dead bodies or any blood. So this priest is, uh, and, and this would have been, I, I don't know whether this is true, Janet, but it's a very good point. And if it is true, I think uh, this would have been clear to Jesus's audience that uh, this, this priest didn't have an excuse. And Janet makes that point. She says the in either case, the point is clear that we are left without excuse when it comes to helping our fellow men. Thank you for those questions. And uh, as always, should you care to communicate with the program, put your name, your first name, and your town in an email and send your question to me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. And please, your, your five-star reviews on iTunes and on Facebook help us to find more listeners, as do your shares of our uh, episode posts. So please continue to do that. We appreciate it very much. Okay, so today this, this week's lesson is very fascinating. Now, just to sum up what's been going on in John so far, uh, we talked about how the first chapter of John is sort of a prologue where John introduces a ton of different themes. He just throws everything at you. Uh, the idea of the, that Jesus is the light of the world, that Jesus is the word, the, the water and the blood, too many to mention. So if you, if you want to remember what some of those themes are, go back to our lesson on John chapter 1. And then John begins two sets of four stories each to deal with, uh, first, four Jewish cultural institutions, and then four stories of Jesus interacting on a Jewish festival. And this can't be a coincidence because it's too well organized. So this, the, the stories of these four festivals begin in John chapter 5. The first thing that happens is Jesus heals this man at the pool of Bethesda. You might remember that story. And the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus because he heals this man on the Sabbath. So it shows how Jesus per, per, perceives the Sabbath and how the Jewish leaders perceive the Sabbath. And, and it's all about, it's very closely tied into what this Jewish festival is. And, and by festival, uh, Jewish feasts or festivals are not what we would think of as a festival. It's a religious observance. Um, we could also call it a holiday, although some of them go on for several days. So that's that's the Sabbath. That's Jesus interacting with the Sabbath, and we see this in the other Gospels as well, is Jesus doesn't perceive the Sabbath the same way that the Pharisees do. And then during the Passover, this particular year, many times um, I'm sure Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover, as he did in the final year of his life. But on this particular occasion, Jesus was away from Jerusalem for for the Passover. The feeding of the 5,000 occurs around the time, John, John tells us, of the Passover. And so the 
idea of the multiplication of the bread, and he talks a lot about manna, and then he goes straight from the feeding of the 5,000 into the area around Capernaum and gives his bread of life discourse. All of those are tied into the unleavened bread of the Passover, and we talked about that when we discussed John chapter 6. So now, so those are the first two festivals, and now John 7 through 10 is the final two. And the longest by far is when Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem on the occasion of the festival of what, what's called tabernacles or booths. And so in, during this particular festival, the Jews are called upon to live outside of Jerusalem, go, go and visit and camp out. And this isn't because there's not enough room for everyone to go stay in Jerusalem in a hotel or with, with family or whatever. It's because they are called upon specifically to remember during this time that they that the entire nation of Israel once lived in the desert. And so they go to the city where the tabernacle, quote-unquote, is. Now it has a permanent home in the temple, and they camp around it the way that, that Israel did in the time of the Exodus. And this is, again, to remember the Exodus. So same with Passover. It's to remember the great thing that God did for Israel in bringing them out of Egypt. So on this occasion... Jesus is in Jerusalem, and the, his disciples, he's up in Galilee, and his disciples are saying, hey, let's go to Jerusalem. You're wanting, I know that you're wanting to get some notoriety. What they said is, um, if anybody if anybody wants to be well-known, this is an early part of John chapter 7, anyone wanting to be well-known is going to show up and perform the same miracles you're doing here. you got to do it in Jerusalem, Jesus. Come on, get with the program. And... They're, assume, they're making the assumption that Jesus wants to be well-known. He wants to get uh, his, his word out there. They know that Jesus is the Messiah, and so they're thinking, okay, Jesus, any day now, he's going to start doing what it is that we know Messiahs do, which is lift the Roman foot off of our throats and, and push the Rome, Romans out of our land. And uh, this is in direct contradiction to what Jesus is, has been telling them. The whole time, so they're not listening, and they also want the. I believe, anyway, the, these disciples of Jesus, they're nameless in this particular passage, early in chapter seven of John. Uh, they're wanting the confirmation of having Jesus go show himself publicly, so that they can feel better about what they're believing, so that they can be confirmed in their belief. So Jesus says, "My time is not yet." He sends them on alone. Uh, and what I read into this passage is that Jesus won't be manipulated, and he didn't want to follow uh, their plan for him. But he does go to the festival about halfway through, and he, he goes, as it says um, in the scriptures, as it were, in private. And when he gets there, he, he learns that everyone's talking about Jesus. They're all saying, oh, is he the Messiah? Is he the prophet? And quote-unquote, the prophet means the uh, the prophet spoken of by Moses, right? In John in uh, John chapter seven verse forty, they're talking about is is Jesus the prophet? And whenever whenever they say the prophet, they also ask this question of John the Baptist. They said, "Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? No. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet?" And Moses made a prophecy before he was taken away in Deuteronomy chapter eighteen verse fifteen. He said. Another prophet will God raise up like unto me. Him you must hear in all things he tells you to do. You got to listen to him. And so Moses gave the law of Moses, and the Jews are never willing to think that any other pronouncement would have a similar would would even approach the five books of Moses in its authoritative nature. And Moses is saying there's going to be a prophet who whose teachings should be every bit as authoritative, if not more so, than, than the teachings that you've received from me. And that's the prophet. And, and nobody knows who it is or when he's coming. And so they're asking John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says no. And they're also asking this question about Jesus. So Jesus is now, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Jesus' teachings during this chapter in just a moment. But at the very end of the chapter, uh, they're all saying, oh gosh, you know, if only Jesus didn't come from Galilee, then we would believe he was the Messiah. You know, what good thing comes from Galilee? Everyone knows from the book of Micah and other places that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. 
And, and this is fascinating passage because obviously John knows where Jesus comes from. And so he doesn't say that they were wrong, you know, if only they had known. This is, this is what's called today, it's called dramatic irony. This was an unknown or an unstudied, unremarked upon uh, rhetorical technique or, or literary technique in John's day, of course. But dramatic irony is where you as the reader know something that the characters in the story don't know, and you're aware of what's going to happen. And so uh, the, all of the people wondering about Jesus are saying, yeah, we all know that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, so, this, so Jesus can't be the Messiah. And that's dramatic irony. It's, it's masterfully done. Okay, so it, during chapter 7, Jesus is talking about, if any man thirst let him come to me and drink. So remember, we just got out of chapter 6, where Jesus said, if you will eat the bread that I will give, any man who eats the bread that I will give him will have eternal life. And the point, the point that we made in that lesson was that the, the way you eat the bread of Jesus, the way you eat that living bread, is to believe in Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 47 and 48, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. And then he said, I am the bread of life. So he's making this connection between believing and in eating the bread and receiving eternal life. So the bread is a symbol. When you, Jesus is just using a metaphor, right? I am this, mean, and if you want to partake of it, you will believe. And so he's saying, he's doing something similar. If any man thirst, now we're in John 7, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Now, uh, we're in the later part of John chapter 7. And uh, in verse 38, it talks about how we'll have a, a, a fountain, or it's around verse 38. I don't have it right in front of me. But um, whoever believeth in me will have, and, and you know, if you drink the living water that I give him, then you will have a fountain pouring out of your belly. This is the way it's rendered in King James. And also in the New uh, International Version. So this is, this is the most common way to translate this, is that the person who believes has a fountain within his belly flowing of living water. And I, I just want to point out something to you. And this is, this is not very well known. In fact, this is sort of... Uh, this is sort of a, a Greek geek way of looking at this verse, but I believe it makes a lot of sense. So um, there are two people, one who believes and one who gives the living water. And then he says, his, what, and then there will be a fountain flowing out of his, quote unquote, belly. And the question is, whose belly? So it seems pretty clear in English. And if you translate it word for word, very, in a very interlinear way, then, or interlinear way, then you end up with um, whoever comes unto me and drinks of this water will have a fountain in his belly. But his can be also uh, a quote of what, what the prophecies around Jesus, whoever comes unto him and drinks, there will be a fountain flowing out of the Lord's belly or out of, or out of this belly. In other words, uh, it is equally, I don't want to say more acceptable, but grammatically it is equally correct. It is, it is just as valid uh, an interpretation to say that Jesus was talking about his own belly. He's, and, and which makes more sense, right? We know that Jesus calls himself the fountain of living water. And we're going to go into why this is a much more powerful metaphor. Um, and there's a reason why I'm... Um, well, I'm spending a little time on this. It's because, number one, it ties in the water metaphor. Now, we've, we've interacted with this metaphor a few times in the baptism of Jesus, in the meeting of Jesus with the woman at the well, Jesus walking on the water. So Jesus is interacting with water in so many different ways. He turns water into wine and, and water, and that ties water and blood together. So all of these, all of these water reminders have already taken place. And here's Jesus saying, I am the living water. Okay. Now remember, the Jews have in their cultural attache case, you might say, in the, in the baggage that they're carrying around, they have this memory of God providing water for them. And here they are in the festival of tabernacles. So 
again, remember, in during the during the Sabbath, Jesus taught what it was like. When John describes Jesus teaching what it's like to be able to do God's work on the Sabbath. During the Passover, John teaches, John shows us that Jesus was teaching what it is like to eat the true unleavened bread of God. And now during the festival of tabernacles, Jesus, John shows Jesus teaching about what it means to truly be in the wilderness and have God look after you. So you'll remember two stories of God looking after the Israelites by providing them with water. The first one is Moses striking the rock. And this is in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17 verse 6, God tells Moses, if you strike the rock, I'll be standing, you, you stand near the rock, I'll be standing on the rock. And uh, this, so this metaphor is not Moses bringing water, it's water flowing from God in the wilderness. And this is clear, this is c- clear in the scriptures, and all the Jews would have understood this, that the water flows from God. And then again in Numbers 20, uh, Moses is commanded to bring water again. In this, in this instance, he's commanded to speak to the rock, but he, he strikes the rock again. Now, what if you think about it, what passage from the book of John do we have that is reminiscent of this? Now, John doesn't just teach things. Uh, John, let me put this another way. John does not write his gospel in such a way that it is meant to be read just right in order. It is meant to be read one, or it is not meant to be read just one time and you get everything that you need right in order. It is meant to be read several times. And so this right now is sort of foreshadowing or it's just another little breadcrumb that later on in John chapter 19, you realize what it meant the whole time. When the soldiers strike the rock, the Roman soldiers strike Jesus, they pierce his side and what should come out? Blood and water. And this is, uh, this is John's way of showing that Jesus was the, the rock that, that is described in the Old Testament. The, that word is reserved for Jehovah. So when the, um, there, well, I, don't, I won't go into the examples. You can look this up. There are a number of times in the Old Testament when uh, Jehovah is called the rock of Israel. So God is the rock, and here's Jesus saying, water will flow from me. This, to me, this also is reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter 47. And if, you, if you'll remember the, um, the lesson where we talked about from last year, where we talked about this fountain of living water flowing from the temple. Now, we've discussed on a few different occasions, occasions how not only is Jesus the temple in a very, very close metaphorical sense, but that John was well aware of this and trying to teach it. But also, uh, Paul and Matthew were teaching the same thing. So this would have been a, uh, a very familiar theme to these, to these evangelists, to teach that Jesus and the temple, or, or the temple is just a metaphor for Jesus. And so the, the, the water is not just the water flowing from the wilderness, although that was particularly apropos during the festival of tabernacles as they're re- uh, reenacting. It's almost like Trek that we do um, We do in the modern church. In the Latter-day Church, we, we send our youth out to reenact the time when people were in the wilderness. So that's what the festival of tabernacles is. And here's Jesus talking about how they got water. So um, it's, it's a very appropriate way to worship, and we still do something similar uh, today. So there's another verse in 1 Corinthians, and this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, and this is Paul talking about the Exodus, and he's saying all, will ba- all were baptized right at the beginning of the uh, right at the beginning of the chapter. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea, all did eat the same spiritual meat. And, all, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So this was very well understood, that Jesus was talking about them drinking from, their, from the rock of their Redeemer. Uh, and so 
the, that's another way to interpret this verse in, in John chapter 7, that it's not a, your, your belly, and I, and I hate to, if this is a, an important verse to you, I hate to, to ruin it for you. I mean, obviously, like I said, each, each interpretation is grammatically supported in Greek, but this is the one that I think has a, a richer imagery with it, is that the, the river of water is actually flowing from Christ to us, rather than from us to other people once we drink of Christ's water. Um, so let's go on to chapter 8. Um, and we're still in tabernacles. And this is right in the middle of the story of tabernacles is this little episode of the woman taken in adultery. Something interesting about this episode, and I'm just going to mention this and then I won't say anything more about it because it's, uh, it's impossible to really know, but there are over 1,500 different surviving manuscripts that contain parts of what we know today as the New Testament. And that number is confusing because um, it, it sort of gives the idea that all of these different uh, manuscripts have equal weight. But the truth is that the older the manuscript, the more weight it has, and there are less than a dozen that are truly the oldest manuscripts that contain uh, the Gospel of John. The earliest versions of the Gospel of John don't have this story. And so that, that puts a question mark. Is it authentic? Was it added later by John? Was it added later by someone else? Uh, was it put in at the first and then taken out and then put back in later? Or some of the earlier ones um, survived to be copied where it was present? And the ones that we have were actually uh, had that story omitted? Impossible for us to know unless we discover uh, additional old manuscripts. Um, the simple fact is that the, the story is not uh, in the oldest manuscripts, and that's that's just a fact. Uh, take from that what you will. So the then the question is, what is it teaching us? Now, to me, this story has one meaning, and or I shouldn't say one meaning. It has a very simple interpretation, and there are probably layers and richness that could, could be discovered. But when Jesus says to the men who are condemning this woman, they, they bring her, and they say, we caught her in the very act um, first of all, there's no man present. Nobody says, hey, we caught this woman and this man, right? So obviously a uh, double standard existed for centuries, as we all know, uh, as far as unfaithfulness regarding men and regarding women. Uh, but re- Jesus doesn't really comment on that. They bring this woman, woman to Jesus and they say, so there's no doubt that she has committed the sin. She doesn't even attempt to deny it. And Jesus says, he, he among you that is without sin, let him first cast a stone against her. Now, uh, it, on, on the surface, this just sounds like he's saying, um, we, it's not appropriate for you to judge someone as long as you have any sins whatsoever. And that's a very dangerous doctrine. If we take that interpretation, then that'll lead you to all kinds of terrible places where you're basically condoning uh, any, anything can be justified under that rationale. And this isn't what Jesus is saying. He among you that is without sin. Jesus, right in this particular story, is sitting right among these men. So he's saying, I will be the one to catch the to cast the first stone against her. And none of the men do. And then Jesus, the, the point he's making is justice does justify. And this is the way I interpret it. This isn't, I I, I don't know that. Um, I don't. I don't have revelation about this, or I haven't read this in any you know books by the first presidency or anything. But this is the way I interpret this this passage. Jesus is saying it would. I would be totally justified in casting the first stone, and yet here's the kind of gospel I believe in. I don't condemn you. So I want you to understand that justice is alive, and justice is. He doesn't. Jesus. These these men. They wanted to trap Jesus and have him say, "Well, listen. Let's not." Let's not fulfill the law of Moses, right? Let's not carry out the penalties that are prescribed in the law of Moses. And if he had said, let's, okay, let's carry out this penalty, then they would have said, well, okay, we're going to go tell the Romans on you because the Romans 
forbade the Jews from carrying out any capital punishment themselves. The Romans had to do it, which is why Jesus was crucified and not stoned. Uh, the Romans had to be the ones to execute a prisoner. So on the one hand, they would have said, oh, you don't believe Moses. And on the other hand, they would have said, oh, you don't obey Rome. That was the trap. And Jesus says, neither. He, do, he doesn't say she shouldn't be stoned. She shouldn't be condemned. He's saying, if there's somebody who has no sin, a.k.a. me, then uh, he should be the one to cast the first stone. And then Jesus says, and then, and then what he doesn't say, what he implies is, I'm within my rights to cast the stone. And yet, here's the kind of gospel that you worship, that you believe in. Here is the kind of God that you worship. The kind of God who has every right to cast a stone against you, but forbears and says, instead, go and sin no more. You have a chance to repent and make your life better. Wouldn't you rather live a better life than continue in sin? And in other words, this is a story about mercy. It is, it is so simple. It is the very definition of mercy. It is very profound at the same time. And that's the woman taken in adultery. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting... So moving on from there, there's a lot of interesting um, examples of Jesus saying, if I bear witness of myself... Anybody who bears witness of themselves, he that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. This is John chapter 7, verse 18. Or in John chapter 5, verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. And then in uh, John chapter 8, the, the uh, Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, you're bearing witness of yourself. Uh, your, your witness is not true. And, and Jesus is saying, uh, even though, John chapter 8, verse uh, 14, he's saying, even though I'm bearing record of myself, they try to, so they, do, they try to do to Jesus what Jesus has done to them so many times. They're paying attention to all of his words, and now they're trying to use his own words against them. And Jesus brilliantly responds. He says, okay, but listen, I am bearing record of myself, and the works that you've seen they bear record from the Father that I am come from him. And then he begins this wonderful, amazing testimony about the Father and how much God loves everyone. Uh, and, and this is the point at which a lot of people watching the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, they start to believe. Uh, even, even more than, I mean, already, obviously, Jesus was the talk of the town before he even arrived. But this is a huge crowd. This is a crowd that is at least as large, if not larger in size, than the ones he, he's been dealing with. And so his, his followership, you might say, begins to vastly increase, or at least the number of people who are believing in him and taking his side over the elders of the Jews. And they're, he, he's saying things about the, his relationship with the Father. The Father is bearing witness of me. And he's saying to these uh these elders, these religious leaders, he's saying, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. In other words, you don't have a choice. You have to believe in, in me or there's no mercy for you. This is, this is a very harsh doctrine for these men to, to hear that this not only is this man saying he is a way to salvation, he's saying he's the only way. And if we don't choose him, to believe in him, then God himself is denied to us. This is one of the, one of these, this is the very kind of thing that makes them so upset with Jesus that they want to kill him. And Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. And, and they say, well, uh, you know, why, why aren't we free? And he says, look, anybody who commits sin is not free. You're the servant of sin. You want to kill me because my word doesn't have any place in you. And now, and now remember um, from John chapter 1, John talking about the two seeds. Anyone that believes in Jesus, he has the power to make them, to, to, re, to give birth to them or make them reborn in the image of God or in the family of God. So the two families, the family of earthly man and the family of God, somebody who's been spiritually reborn. And he's saying, and Jesus starts talking upon these lines right now. He's talking about how you, you, know, you claim that you're descendants of Abraham, but that's not a big deal. Abraham isn't your father. You're doing the works of your father. And they say, now, wait a minute, what does that mean? Uh, yeah, Abraham is our father. And he says, no, you, you're doing the works of your father, the devil. 
you want to kill me because I talked to you about God. Abraham didn't do that. And Abraham saw my day when he saw, when he looked forward from thousands of years ago and saw my day, he rejoiced. And they say, how do you know that? You know, you're, you're not even 50 years old and you, you're claiming to know what Abraham thought. And then Jesus says this marvelous, this wonderful statement. Verily I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, uh, this, let's, let's talk a little bit about those words. So we have this in Greek, and so it's, it makes it a little harder to analyze what Jesus, um, exactly the form that this took. Um, there are a couple of ways to say I am in, in Hebrew, and Jesus was probably speaking Hebrew with these, with these Jewish elders, or at least Aramaic, which would have been similar enough. And in, in Hebrew, you can say, when you want to say, I am hungry, or I am tired, or I am uh, from Israel, or I am Mark, you just say I, and then you skip am, and then you say the thing that you are, and it's understood that you're talking about yourself. So, I am my father's son, you would just say, I, my father's son. If you want to say I exist, and you want to give emphasis to the act of existing, in other words, you're taking this verb to be almost from a state of being word into an action verb, then you use uh, this, this special verb, the special what's called a root in Hebrew. And Moses was given this, this root, this name, when Moses in Exodus chapter 3 said, okay, look, God, and Moses is talking to the burning bush, and he's been called, God said, I've heard the cries of the people in, in Egypt, I need you to go back and save them, and and Moses says, God, okay, uh, you know, takes a little convincing. And then he says, okay, I'll go back, but how, sh- how will they know that I talk to you? What shall I tell them your name is? And then Jehovah says to uh, Moses, he says, I am that I am. This is the name that uh, Jehovah gives or Yahweh gives to Moses. Now, Let's talk a little bit about Hebrew. This might be a little esoteric, but the the Hebrew phrase meaning I am that I am is aye, which means I am. Asher, which uh, you might you might notice is the name of one of the, the tribes of Israel. Aye, Asher, aye. I am what I am, or I am that which I am. And then he repeats it. He says, tell the children of Israel that I am hath sent you unto them. But what happens when Moses arrives in Egypt? Who does he say? He uses the word Yahweh or Yehovah, uh, depending on, and, and the way you pronounce that has to do with uh, whether you think that word is saying that God, in, in, in any case, it's, a, it's some conjugation of he is. So when, by the time Moses arrives in Egypt, he's not saying, I am sent me to you. He's saying, he is sent me to you. He exists, the eternal one, or he who causes to exist. So it's either um, the name of God either means somebody who exists eternally, unchangingly, or who is the creator, depending on which, uh, which way you translate that. There, there's quite a controversy around uh, what that name actually means. But in any case, there is no controversy around the fact that it's in the third person. So Moses hears from God Aye, I am. Aye, Asher, Aye. Tell them that I am have, hath sent you to them. And then Moses get there, gets there and says, Thus saith he is Yahweh, Jehovah. So the difference between Aye and Yahweh is the difference between Moses speaking to God directly face to face, the way a prophet speaks to the Lord, and Moses speaking to the people representing God on on their behalf. And when Moses is talking about, thus saith the Lord, thus saith he is, thus saith someone who's not here present talking to you right now. That's, That's the grammatical form. This is the change that Moses made in the name of God. And so to me, it seems like there's something significant in the fact that when God says his name, he says, I am. And when Moses says God's name, he says, he is. It is not, in other, the way that I interpret it, 
let, let me just say it and you can you can make your own conclusion but the way I interpret it is it is not to be in man's mouth to say God's name as if you are God you have to say God's name as if you're talking about God so even God's very name has to be said differently when you're not God so now let's go back to Jesus talking to these men Jesus says before Abraham was and then instead and, and then instead of saying he is Yahweh Jehovah was, Jehovah existed, the, the eternal God existed. He says, before Abraham was, Aye, I am. In other words, he's speaking to them as if they're Moses and he's the burning bush, God behind the burning bush, the voice of Jehovah talking to them. There could be no more powerful testimony of who Jesus is. The, the, there, this, uh, these, these few chapters that we're studying, these four chapters today, 7, 8, 9, and 10, are where Jesus makes his boldest declarations about who he is. We already read about how he talked about, uh, in chapter 8, he talked about the nature of his relationship with God the Father. And a lot of people started believing on him. Well, that is nothing next to him saying, before Abraham was, I am. And that is, a, that is Jesus saying, not only am I, you've, you've been asking me, am I the Messiah? I am this Davidic, am I this Davidic King, am I the son of David who's going to come back and restore some sort of autonomy to the nation state of Israel? And what I'm telling you is, I'm so far beyond just the Messiah, I am actually the God of Israel. And I can't be more clear to you than to use his name. This, this is not Jesus saying something that's sort of uh, a little bit obscure and they would have had to understand the scriptures in order to get it. They knew instantly what he was saying. And that's why they picked up stones to kill him uh, because they were so offended. And the problem is when God himself is talking to you, you can't get offended when he calls himself God. This, this very uh, act, this very claim is repeated in chapter 10. And we'll just jump forward um, no, I'll talk about that when we get to chapter 10. But in, in, in any case, Jesus does something similar in chapter 10 again. And he testifies very boldly about the nature of his relationship with God. And namely that he is God. And uh, they, they have a similar reaction. John chapter 9, I think, if you were going to read for yourself any of the passages that we're studying today, if you just could not, if you had to pick one chapter and you could not miss it, I would say pick chapter nine. It's this beautiful story. And, and there's so much for us to see ourselves in this story, but it's this beautiful story of Jesus healing a blind man. And then this blind man, he gets all kinds of consequences in his life for believing in Jesus. And this is just a microcosm of what it's like to embark on a covenant path or what, of what the the prophets and apostles have taken over the last few years to, to calling the covenant path. So here's this man. He's sitting outside of one of the gates begging, and Jesus comes up with his disciples, and he looks at him. And uh, the disciples say, Lord, you know, who, what, uh, what's the problem? What, what caused this man to be blind? Did he commit a sin, or did his parents commit a sin? Who's being punished here? And Jesus says, neither. I'm, I'm not... I'm not going to say that this man sinned or that his parents did. And, and then he says something that I think, I wish we could talk about. I could spend a whole hour just talking about this statement, but I'll just talk about it for maybe 30 seconds or so. He says that the works of God might be made manifest in him. And if I were this blind man, that would make me so upset. That's, that's the thought I have every time I read this story. Are you telling me? that I have been blind my whole life. Who knows how old this person is, but decades old, obviously. Are you telling me I've been blind my whole life so that you could come along and heal me and show that you know how to heal people? Like, come on, go heal somebody who was injured yesterday. Don't make me live my whole life as a blind man. And the the point is, you know, Jesus, if if you're feeling that way, if you're, if you're reacting to, in this way, to one of the teachings of Jesus, then you have to examine your attitude, and that's that's what I've done. So I've, I've you know, I, I had this reaction, like, man, that doesn't seem fair. I think I'd be really upset. I'd be triggered by that. And uh, so 
examining that, you realize, first of all, uh, God doesn't ever do anything for, this is my personal belief, that God never does anything for just one reason. But secondly, that the works of God might be manifest is a sufficient reason for everything. It doesn't feel like enough. And what Jesus is saying in this statement is that that is enough. That is enough of a justification for all the suffering you know about, that the works of God might be made manifest. And it doesn't seem intuitively clear why. And so then it's our job to understand and to think about and to ponder why that might be true. Why would it be true that having the works of God made manifest is worth somebody living their whole life as a blind man? That's, that I raise as a question. I'm not going to give you my answer, my interpretation, but I, I encourage you to ponder that question. Why would it be true that it is worth that amount of suffering for the works of God to be made manifest? So Jesus heals this blind man. He makes him, he makes him mud, anoints his eyes, tells him to wash in the pool of Siloam, which the man does. And then the the Jewish elders of the synagogue are upset. <laughs> they, they want to prove that Jesus, again, Jesus does this on the Sabbath, and they want to prove that Jesus is wicked. And so they summon this man, and they summon his parents, and they say, um, isn't he a sinner? Didn't he do this by the power of Satan or some evil power? You know, tell us what you know. Help us. Give us some ammunition we can use against Jesus. And the parents, they're like, well, you know, they're scared. They know that they know their son. They can't say that their son hasn't been blind his whole life because he has. And that's what the leaders of the synagogue want. They want the parents to say, uh, somehow they want to find out that Jesus faked all of this. And the parents are like, well, uh, we don't know how he did it, but we do know that our son was born blind. Sorry, we can't help you. And they're obviously intimidated. But the man himself, he comes before them uh, as a seeing man. And uh, just as a side note, there's an interesting movie. I can't remember the name of it. It came out several years ago. I think it's called At First Sight. Um, and I don't necessarily recommend the movie, but the point is this man has, is given a, uh, a surgery. It's based on a true story. He's given a surgery and he gains sight and for the first time. And his brain does not have the requisite synaptic connections in order to process what he's seeing. These are the things that we learn in the first two years of life. And he walks around um, without understanding how fast things are coming at him. Um, he doesn't know how to interpret visual cues. He runs into glass doors, and it's worse than that. There's all kinds of confusion that exists. So it's more than just healing his eyes that Jesus did. He actually healed and changed this person's brain. He had to have, or else he wouldn't have been able to truly see. And so that, that should give all of us hope, because we all have some sort of suffering that we've been going through, and it all involves, almost without exception, something going on in our brain. The decisions that we're making, the pathways, the neural pathways that we've reinforced that lead us into temptation, that lead us into um, listening to voices that we would do better not to listen to, and that reinforced these these bad choices that we've made our whole lives. And Jesus, the this story shows that Jesus is capable of undoing all of that in one brief episode. And we've seen in other areas, even in the Gospel of John, in other passages where Jesus doesn't have to be present to heal someone if they believe enough. So that's another reason why this story is so powerful, is it shows that Jesus can not only heal our bodies, but heal our brains and make complicated, I mean, the, the brain is not understood even in the slightest by the most advanced of scientists, and Jesus made perfect changes to bring that brain into, uh, into the ability to use the eyes to their utmost, uh, instantly use the eyes to their utmost potential. So the leaders of the synagogue, they don't want to hear about this blind man, so they cast him out because he keeps saying, well, you know, Nobody in the scriptures, nobody in history has ever healed someone who was born blind. And this is, and obviously they would have been aware of the many passages in Isaiah that talk about the restoring of sight to the blind. This is one of the witnesses that Jesus gave, if you recall, John the Baptist, 
was a little worried, like, why aren't you acting like a Messiah, Jesus? And uh, so he sent his servants from from prison where he was, and he said, ask Jesus if he really is the Messiah, if we should look for someone else. And one of the proofs that Jesus gave was, tell John what you see here, people being healed. And one of the things he said was the restoring of sight to the blind. This is one of the things that Messiah does. And so he says, it's never been seen that someone was healed the way I've been healed. So he has to be from God. And they have no response to him, so they kick him out of the synagogue. The message to all of this is there were two groups of people. The, there were the man, his parents, and then there were these Jewish elders, right? The Jewish elders could see the whole time, but this man couldn't see. But Jesus was able to heal the man who could not see. And I guess I could sum it up with these three words. Believing is seeing. Instead of we say, you know, it's a common saying. Seeing is believing. The message of this chapter is that believing, seeing is believing, is, is what we hear from the world. And the message of this chapter is that believing is seeing. Because who, in the end, is shown to be blind? Here's the Messiah right in front of them. The, the proof of, that Isaiah gave for who the Messiah would be would, would be that he would restore the sight. And they refused to see it. And as exactly as was foretold by Isaiah, that seeing, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, that seeing they should not perceive. They should be blind even though they see. So um, the, John does this so masterfully and so amazingly. Um, this, I, I've said it before, but John is the Michelangelo of evangelists, of the people who wrote about the good news of Jesus. The, the way that this his gospel is arranged is is masterful i've said that word too many times but it it is absolutely virtue virtuosity in in the scriptural sense and um let's move let's move now into john chapter 10 so jesus talks about he starts out chapter 10 still we're still now uh, I think, I mean, it seems that we're still talking about Jesus in, on his visit to Jerusalem during the festival of tabernacles. And he talks about how he's the good shepherd. Here's what I will do for the sheep. You know, the thieves come in and what they want to do is they want to take away the sheep and eat them or mistreat the sheep or they want to just get their wages. But then if there's a predator that shows up trying to feast on the sheep, the what is the hireling going to do but run away? But no, I'm the shepherd. These are my sheep. I own them. And so if a wolf shows up, if a predator shows up, I'm going to put my life at risk. That's how much my sheep are worth to me. And this was a loaded, this wasn't just a simple thing of Jesus saying, I'm good to my followers. I'm good to my children. This is very strong language um, from most most notably from Ezekiel chapter 34. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, you'll notice, if you go back and read it, we, we used to use this in Elders Quorum. If, you've, if you're an elder, you would have heard this chapter so many times because it's the chapter of, um, you know, I am against the shepherds. And this is Ezekiel talking about how all of you so-called leaders, uh, religious leaders, you're feeding yourselves with the status that you get because Jews care about religion so much. You have status from being a religious leader, but you're not actually feeding the sheep. And in that chapter, Ezekiel says, Thus saith the Lord, therefore I will be the shepherd. And that starts in, this is Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16, but really 11 through the end of the chapter. He talks about all the ways, Jehovah talks about all the ways in which he'll be the shepherd to Jerusalem or to, uh, sorry, to, to Israel. And uh, in turn, this chapter is evoking the language of Psalm chapter 23, or Psalm 23, among many other places in the scriptures. But in every case, it's Jehovah being the shepherd. The Lord, as David said, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, etc., etc. This is all Jehovah doing these things. And so when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I am the door of the sheep. In other words, the sheep can't come and go unless they go through me. That 
there, there could be no more explicit way to say that very thing. I am the door of the sheep. The sheep do not get to where they're going unless they pass through me. And in other words, there is no other shepherd. There's not me and, and God, me and my father. There's just me. I am the shepherd. This is language, again, to say that I am not only the Messiah. I am not just the one that God promised David about that should come from his line. But I'm the one David was talking about when he talked about the Lord is my shepherd. David sang songs about me. He wasn't, he wasn't comforted by hearing about my day, that I would be one of his descendants and that my kingdom would have no end. That's the Messiah. Yes, that's one thing that I, that I, that's one prophecy that I fulfill. But on a so much higher level, I am the God who he saw as his shepherd. I am the shepherd from Ezekiel 34. This is what these Jewish leaders would have heard, and this is what the uh, people surrounding, many of them at least, would have heard as well. And so those who were willing to believe in Jesus, they, they were thinking, wow, the, the Messiah is not only Messiah, but our God, the God of Israel. And uh, if, you're, if you're doubting what I'm saying, then let's go on to the final portion of our, of our, the final thing that we'll study, and this is the second half of uh, chapter, John chapter 10. So now we're, this is our final festival. The, there were four Jewish institutions or four Jewish cultural symbols, and now four Jewish festivals. And in each case, Jesus confronts it directly and shows how he is the festival. He is the reason for the season, as, as we say today. Um, in the Festival of Tabernacles, they, they're there to commemorate living in the wilderness, and Jesus says, I'm the living water. If, if, if you touch this rock, out will come, if you smite this rock, out will come water. And John makes that point later on in chapter 19. Now here we are, the Festival of Tabernacle, or a Festival of Dedication, what we know today as Hanukkah. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about what this festival is all about. Um, the reason that we don't know this festival super well is because it doesn't show up in the King James Version. It, it, it wasn't initiated or instituted in the King James Version. Uh, in order to find out where it was instituted, you have to read what we know as the Apocrypha, and specifically the books of First and Second Maccabees. And the Maccabees are this family of Jewish royalty, pseudo-royalty, which became royalty. They were descendants of David, and they were of the tribe of Judah. And at the time, uh, Israel, or the, the Judea, Samaria, the lands of the, that we know as Israel today, was ruled over by a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was so cruel to the Jews that he, he killed anyone who ate kosher, who worshipped in the temple. He defiled the temple. He sacrificed pigs on the altar. He, he flayed the skin from people who were worshipping God right there in the temple. And this, this made the Jews so upset. And so you can understand why the reactions were so powerful against Rome, because they were hearing these echoes of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king. And... Um, Anyway, there arose this man, Matthias Maccabeus, and his sons. He had seven sons, and they overthrew and, and actually gained autonomy. And so for a time, many people thought that the Maccabees were the Messiah, or one of the Judah Maccabee was the Messiah, because he did everything that a Messiah does, right? This, this is the contrast that a lot of people are drawing between the Jesus that they're seeing and the Jesus that they were expecting. You know, the Maccabees... One, they didn't die, they, they lived, they conquered, they overthrew the tyrants, and then they established a dynasty. And um, so this is, this is the festival of the dedication, because after these days, then they had to rededicate the temple, and the legend was that there wasn't enough oil for the menorah to burn the whole time, but then the oil never ran out and it burned the whole time anyway. So God miraculously kept this burning so that the temple could be, could be sanctified. 
And again, Jesus uses this language. He talks about how in John chapter 10, verse 36, he says, God has sanctified me. So the the whole thing that they're, they're celebrating is God sanctifying the temple and making it possible for the Jews to worship there again. And in uh, John 10, 10, 36, he says, um, first of all, Jesus makes this similar claim. I, I mentioned how Jesus does it again in, in John chapter 10. Um, he's talking about, again, himself as the shepherd. And then he says, my father has given me this sheep. You're not, you're not hearing my voice. That means you're not of my fold. You're not, if you, if you want to be one of my sheep, you have to hear my voice. And then he says, I and the father are one. Now, again, it's important to understand the context of this statement. It's similar to when he said, I am. This is right out of the book of Deuteronomy. When uh, Moses was about to die, Deuteronomy is Moses taking the gospel and restating everything that he's taught and saying, remember, look, I'm going to record it all for you again so that you have everything I've taught throughout my whole life. Here are my conference, my general conference talks that you should remember forever. And to start it off, Moses gave the most important commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Jehovah your God, Jehovah is one. This is from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5. Oh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And it's called the Shema. Right and right, right after it is, "Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength." This is the most important commandment, and it begins, "The Lord your God, the Lord is one." And here is Jesus saying, "I and the Father are one." Again, not ambiguous. He's not being cagey. He's not saying it in some sort of obscure way. This is this is the equivalent of some saying someone saying today, "I am Yahweh." I am the God of Israel. This is every bit as explicit as that. And so they picked up stones to kill him. And he says, Jesus says, many good works have I shown you. Which of these are you stoning me for? And they said, oh no, it's not those good works. We're stoning you because of your blasphemy. And so Jesus confuses them. He says, well then, isn't it written in the scriptures that you are gods? And and then he's, he's talking about, he's he's invoking now, uh, the, the 82nd Psalm. And they so they're confused a little bit longer, but he says, look, if I'm not doing the works of my father, and, and this is understood to mean when he's talking about his father, he's not just talking about um, his father who uh, is God the father, but he's also talking about his godly aspect before he came to the earth. That, that's, the, that's the dual nature of Jesus, and he definitely has a dual nature. He has, a, he has Jesus and he has Jehovah. They're two sides of the same person. And, and when he talks about the Father, he's also saying this. So in that sense, the Christian interpretation is, is true. I mean, Jesus is talking about uh, the, the, the way that he is both God and man. He's, he's the perfect man, meaning that he has to be God in order to be perfect. And so, so he says, look, if you don't believe me, just believe in the works that you've seen me do. Nobody could do them unless the Father were in him, were in me, and I were in him. In other words, he repeats his blasphemy. And they, and they took, and they tried again. They picked up stones again because they, they were once again scandalized by what Jesus was saying. So the point behind all of this is Jesus is talking about, I mean, if I could sum up all of the teachings from all of these festivals, and especially tabernacles and Hanukkah, I would say that Jesus is talking about the necessity of us believing in him and the way that if we will, he's capable of extending his mercy to us and he's capable of taking the stone out of his own hand and letting us repent, giving us the opportunity to repent. And he's also capable of changing our minds and our hearts because he is the God of Israel. And he will come after us the way a shepherd would come after the sheep. These, these four chapters are, the, the rest of the gospels might be other people testifying of Jesus and trying to help 
us understand what, what Jesus said or what he was teaching. These four chapters are Jesus teaching us directly that he loves us, that he is the God of Israel capable of forgiving, and not only capable of forgiving, but capable of changing. He's teaching us that our suffering has a meaning. And most importantly, he's teaching us that when we believe, we will not only be healed, but we will, we, we will not only be forgiven, but we will have eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.